a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking a chance and hitting and clicking play and, you know, just seeing for yourself. What is this all about? This is about gathering to revel in wrong think, which is, I, I predict, it's going to become a, a very revolutionary kind of action. In fact, I, I'm surprised that at least at some level it isn't outlawed yet. But it's a great thing to do. It's what free people do. And if you are serious about your freedom, I welcome you to a place where where you can revel in wrong think and you will find yourself in good company. Our show is brought to you each day at this time, or in, in this instance, uh, this podcast episode is brought to you each day by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, by Monticello College, and Rio del Sion Home Lots. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There's actually a little special sponsors section at the bottom of the show notes. You can click on any one of those names, and it will take you directly to them. It will help you contact them. And I hope you'll at least reach out to them and tell them, hey, thanks for making it possible for Brian to sit there behind the microphone and do whatever it is he's doing. So here's what's on tap today. I, you know, I've really thought hard. I actually think about this every day. Every time I sit down to do this show, I try to think of what would be useful, encouraging, and empowering to share with you. And sometimes it's it's words of encouragement. Sometimes it's just the, the reminder, hey, you know, all these people who purport, hey, we're in charge here now. We're in charge. It's it's our regime. You know, we control the world. Um, they're, they're fooling themselves and, and maybe fooling you and me at the same time. They are not who is really in charge in the most universal sense possible. And so I, I like to remind people of that every so often. There, there is a universal sense of justice that will be fulfilled someday. So the stuff you see, the bad behavior you see going, uh, you know, unpunished today, it's not always going to be that way. But for now, we live in a world that uh, I think the word uh, fallen describes pretty well. And so sometimes the, the challenge is just getting a better feel of what exactly is going on in this world. And so I'm, I'm going to be sharing a little more information on, on some of the things taking place around us. For instance, we're going to talk about uh, learning to live with the new normal as it applies to the new normal domestic uh, terror war. See, I'm, I'm hearing phrases like reality crisis and realizing, oh my goodness, we've boiled this down to a matter of you don't see reality which is kind of in keeping with what uh, the Soviets used to do with, with people who dissented against, you know, party dogma. Well, obviously, your mind isn't right, and they would put them into the gulag or other re-education camps to help them, you know, get their thinking straightened out. Are we headed that way? Hmm, time will tell. But the direction, how can I put this, seems familiar. It seems like that's that's definitely where it's taking us. We're going to talk about that. Got a great essay from C.J. Hopkins that uh, pulls no punches. Also, as you watch big tech deplatform and banish wrong thinkers to outer darkness, you ever thought about it in the context of it's really not free speech that's being violated by big tech so much as contractual agreements? 
Yeah, the contractual agreements, they, the, uh, what do they call it, the terms of service that they like to invoke. So that's, there's another option. We're also going to talk about how uh, the decline of the art of lying is part of the world that we live in today. Not that we say that lying is a good thing, but I've got an article here from Alan J. Levine that identifies four root causes as to why the people who lie are getting worse at it and yet at the same time seem to hold sway over an awful lot of other people. And I will get around to some solutions. Before the end of this hour, we're going to talk about what kind of society would you like to live in? If somebody asks you that question on the street, I think a lot of us would sit there and be like, hmm... I'm going to need a minute here to put those thoughts together. Well, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has put together a very succinct, principled outline of what an ideal system of government would look like. And the crazy thing about it is you wouldn't have to reinvent the wheel. This is not like, oh, that's never been done before. What he describes looks very much like the system of government we lived under in America, well, for for over 100 years. Obviously, we're not under that same system now, but it's really worth checking out. And last but not least, for those who are truly fed up, those who have read Atlas Shrugged and are looking at the practicality of going galt, like the uh, main character of Ayn Rand's uh, masterpiece, I have an excellent essay to share with you on five things to remember as you're headed out for galt's gulch. And I'm just going to stick my neck out and say, this may be the best thing you read today. And it's right there in the show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. But let's let's start with the bad news first, and that would be the new normal war on domestic terror. This is from Consent Factory, Inc., which I'm finding is a wonderful resource. C.J. Hopkins is the author, and this this guy's got a he has a very sharp pen, but he makes a lot of sense. And there's 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 a tinge of humor in everything that he's saying as well. He says, if you enjoyed the global war on terror. You're going to love the new war on domestic terror. It's just like the original global war on terror, except that this time the terrorists are all domestic violent extremists or DVEs, homegrown violent extremists, HVEs, violent conspiracy theorist extremists, VCTEs. Here's my favorite. Violent reality denialist extremists, VRDEs. (laughs) I think that's what I am, except for the violent part. And then we have insurrectionary microaggressionist extremists, IMAEs. And last but not least, PWMLFUs, people who make liberals feel uncomfortable. And anyone else, the Department of Homeland Security wants to slap an extremist label on and and, uh, a ridiculous acronym to go along with it. So according to a National Terrorism Advisory System bulletin issued by the Department of Homeland Security back on January 27th, these DCEs, HVEs, VCTEs, VRDEs, IMAEs, and PWMLFUs are ideologically motivated violent extremists with objections to the exercise of governmental authority and other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives. They are believed to be motivated by a range of issues, including anger over COVID-19 restrictions, the 2020 election results, police use of force, and other dangerous false narratives. In other words, the existence of the deep state, herd immunity, biological sex, God, and so on. C.J. Hopkins says, inspired by foreign terrorist groups and emboldened, By the breach of the U.S. Capitol building, this diabolical network of domestic terrorists, by the way, he's quoting this from the the DHS uh, press release, their bulletin, 
is plotting attacks against government facilities, threatening violence against critical infrastructure, and actively citing misinformation and conspiracy theories about COVID-19. For all we know, he says, they might be huddled in the wolf's lair at Mar-a-Lago right now, plotting a devastating terrorist attack with those WMDs whenever found in Iraq or generating population-adjusted death charts going back 20 years, or posting pictures of extremist frogs on the Internet. C.J. Hopkins says the Department of Homeland Security is concerned, as are its counterparts throughout the global capitalist empire. The new normal war on domestic terror isn't just a war on American domestic terror. The domestic terror threat is international. France has just passed a global security law banning citizens from filming the police beating the living snot out of people, among other anti-terrorist provisions. In Germany, the government is preparing to install an anti-terror moat around the Reichstag. In the Netherlands, police are cracking down on the VCTEs, VRDEs, and other angry citizens who hate the system, who've been protesting over nightly curfews. Suddenly, everywhere you look, or at least if you're looking in the corporate media, global extremism networks are growing. So it's time for Globocop to take the gloves off and again root the terrorists out of their hidey holes and roll out an official new narrative. Now, actually, he says, there's not much new about it. C.J. Hopkins says, when you strip away all the silly new acronyms, the new normal war on domestic terror is just a combination of the war on terror narrative and the new normal narrative. In other words, militarization of the so-called new normal and a pathologization of the war on terror Now, why would Globocop want to do that, you ask? He says, I think you know, but I'll go ahead and tell you. See, the problem with the original global war on terror was that it wasn't actually all that global. It was basically just a war on Islamic terrorism, in other words, resistance to global capitalism and its post-ideological ideology, which was fine as long as Globocap was destabilizing and restructuring the greater Middle East. But that was put on hold in 2016, so that global cap could focus on defeating populism, in other words, resistance to global capitalism and its post-ideological ideology. They wanted to make an example of Donald Trump and demonize everyone who voted for him or just refused to take part in their so-called free and fair elections, which they have just finished doing in spectacular fashion. So now it's back to the war on terror business, except with a whole new cast of terrorists or technically an expanded cast of terrorists. By the way, terrorist is always in quotation marks. We'll come back to this in a few moments. Like I say, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but it also hits pretty hard because there's a lot of truth here. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article by C.J. Hopkins. This is from ConsentFactory.org. It's called The New Normal War on Domestic Terror. And as, as he lists out some of the things that have uh, global authorities concerned with the rise in extremism, it seems pretty plain that the extremism that they refer to may not really be extremism at all, at least not in the sense of, you know, this is not Hezbollah detonating bombs on buses and whatnot. We're talking about people simply standing up and saying, hey, I'm not going to put on that straitjacket or I'm not going to wear these shackles or just contesting. I'm not going to keep my business closed down just because some bureaucrat says, I don't think you're essential. 
But when you start defining it in terms of terror and extremism, we've got to root this out like we have the global war on terror, you realize, of course, what most governments, especially the U.S. government, did for the global war on terror was to basically set aside all meaningful limits or restraints on its power, meaning extrajudicial killings, kidnappings, torture. Um, They call it extraordinary rendition because that sounds so much nicer than torture. But uh, holding people without charges, holding people without counsel. Yeah, because anything goes when you're fighting the war on terror. And by the way, there were plenty of us who warned. You let this stay. You let this take hold. It's going to be turned against us. Well, guess what, folks? Here we are. As C.J. Hopkins says, in short, Global Cap has simply expanded, recontextualized, and pathologized the war on terror. In other words, the war on resistance to global capitalism and its post-ideological ideology. And he says this was always inevitable, of course. A globally hegemonic system, in other words, global capitalism, has no external enemies, as there is no territory outside the system. Its only enemies are within the system, and thus by definition are insurgents known as terrorists and extremists. Now he says those terms are utterly meaningless, obviously. They're purely strategic, deployed against anyone who deviates from Globocap's official ideology, which, in case you were wondering, is called normality, or in our case, currently, new normality. See, in earlier times, these terrorists and extremists were known as heretics, apostates, blasphemers. Today, they're also known as deniers, like science deniers, COVID deniers, and more recently and disturbingly, reality deniers. This is an essential part of the pathologization of the war on terror narrative. That new breed of terrorists do not just hate us for our freedoms, they hate us because they hate reality. They're no longer our political or ideological opponents. They're suffering from a psychiatric disorder. They no longer need to be argued with or listened to. They need to be treated, re-educated, deprogrammed until they accept reality. Now he says, if you think I'm exaggerating the totalitarian nature of this new normal war on terror narrative, he has a link to the op-ed in the New York Times, which explores the concept of a reality czar to deal with our reality crisis. And he also points out, this is just the beginning, of course. The consensus, at least in global cap circles, is... The new normal war on domestic terror will probably continue for the next 10 to 20 years, which should provide the global capitalist ruling classes with more than enough time to carry out the Great Reset, destroy what's left of human society, and condition the public to get used to cringing like neo-feudal peasants who have to ask permission to leave their houses. Now, we're still in the initial shock and awe phase, which will have to scale back a little bit uh, eventually, but he says, look at how much they've already accomplished. The economic damage is literally incalculable. Millions have been plunged into desperate poverty, countless independent businesses crushed, whole industries industries crippled, developing countries rendered economically dependent, in other words, compliant for the foreseeable future, as billionaires amassed over a trillion dollars in wealth and supranational corporate behemoths consolidated their dominance across the planet. But that's just the economic damage. C.J. Hopkins says the attack on society has been even more dramatic. Global cap in the space of a year has transformed the majority of the global masses into an enormous, paranoid, totalitarian cult that is no longer capable of even rudimentary reasoning. He says, I'm not going to go on about it here. At this point, you either recognize it or you're in it. They're actually lining up in parking lots, the double-masked members of this Covidian cult, to be injected with an experimental vaccine that they believe will save the human species 
from a virus that causes mild to moderate symptoms in roughly 95% of those infected and that over 99% of the infected survive. So he says it's no big surprise that these same mindless cultists are gung-ho for the new normal war on domestic terror and the upcoming globally televised show trial of Donald Trump for inciting insurrection and the ongoing corporate censorship of the Internet and can't wait to be issued their freedom passports, which will allow them to take part in new normal life, double-masked and socially distanced, naturally, while having their every movement and transaction and every word they write on Facebook or in an email or say to someone on their smartphones or in the vicinity of their 5G toasters recorded by Global Caps Intelligence Services and their corporate partners, subsidiaries, and assigns. He says these people have nothing at all to worry about as they would never dream of disobeying orders and could not produce an original thought, much less one displeasing to Global Cap, even if you held a fake apocalyptic plague to their heads. As for the rest of us extremists, domestic terrorists, heretics, and reality deniers, in other words, anyone criticizing global capitalism or challenging its official narratives and its increasingly totalitarian ideology, regardless of our specific DHS acronyms. C.J. Hopkins says, I wish I had something hopeful to tell you, but the truth is, things aren't looking so good. Guess I'll see you in the quarantine camp or in the psych ward or an offshore detention facility or, I don't know, maybe I'll see you in the streets. (laughs) It's dark humor, but he's right. He's got so much in there that, uh, uh, again, it's hard truths, but uh, but I think he softens it with a bit of humor. I'm I'm just grateful there are people who see and speak with that kind of clarity. You don't have to agree with it, but it's definitely a refreshing change from at least uh, what, what the official narrative is, is telling us. This is what you have to believe. By the way, speaking of official narratives, isn't it just a little bit disturbing that uh, big tech is regularly deplatforming and banishing wrong thinkers, you know, to the fringes of society so much now that it's almost routine. We, we don't really, you know, get a shiver up our spines. We just kind of, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's what happens. Here's an interesting article from Lipton Matthews. This is on intellectualtakeout.org. Big tech violates contracts, not free speech. I thought this was an interesting take. Lipton Matthews says liberals rarely defend the property rights of corporations. So it's kind of amusing that scores of them are arguing that social media companies have the right to deplatform rogue actors. Now, unfortunately, by making free speech the crux of the argument, conservatives have ceded the debate to liberals. He says instead, we should be asking ourselves if companies can arbitrarily violate contractual agreements though the average person creating a social media account may not realize he's entering into a contract, nonetheless, a binding agreement exists. If the contract is breached by either party, then the aggrieved party is entitled to remedies. Twitter's terms of service allow the platform to expel users for engaging in unlawful conduct or harassment, but they also explicitly note that Twitter will not be responsible for content that offends viewers. Here's a quote from their terms of service. You understand that by using the services, you may be exposed to content that might be offensive, harmful, inaccurate, or otherwise inappropriate, or in some cases, postings that have been mislabeled or otherwise deceptive, end quote. And to this, he says, by joining Twitter, one consents to consuming hostile content. Twitter's not obligated to protect users from controversial ideas. Using Twitter, like navigating life in general, is risky. Anyone assuming Twitter ought to be a safe place should just leave the site. 
Social media enables different groups to share a wide variety of experiences. Twitter and other platforms do not exist solely to promote liberal viewpoints. Eccentric characters are free to express inaccurate positions. They may even spread dubious conspiracy theories. None of these actions are impermissible under their contracts with Twitter. Now, I've got to take a break here, but we'll come back to this in just a few moments. I I never thought of it in these terms, but the way he's explaining this, yeah. I think Lipton Matthews actually has a point worth considering. Didn't somebody say something about uh, not hiding your light under a bushel? I don't know. I may work that in here somewhere along the way as well. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Anybody who has built a business understands that commercial insurance is part of the bargain. It's part of what you do. Not only is it required, but it's also the right thing to do. The thing is, a lot of times people have questions because this can get uh, confusing quickly. There's a lot of details, a lot of things to know. And if if you're already wearing a lot of hats, you know, your chief cook and bottle washer, uh, maybe you need a little bit of help. Well, this is where Landmark Risk Management and Insurance has a very capable and professional team of experienced agents and people who can answer those questions for you and make sure that you have what you need and don't have what you don't need. You'll find the contact information in the show notes at the bottom of today's show notes. That's for February 11th, 2021 at com. Reach out and give them a shout. Tell them thank you for sponsoring the show. So I'm sharing an article here from Lipton Matthews who says it's not free speech that's being violated by big tech so much as contractual agreements. And he points out that, you know, Twitter tells you right there in its terms of services, you're going to encounter content that you are going to disagree with or that you're you're, going to find offensive, maybe harmful or inaccurate. And his point here is that one expects users to exercise judgment when they're consuming information. Therefore, they must hold themselves accountable for failing to properly assess posts on the platform, both others and their own. Twitter's terms of service state it cannot be held liable if its users fail in that responsibility. Again, this is from the terms of service. Quote, all content is the sole responsibility of the person who originated such content. We may not monitor or control the content posted via the services, and we cannot take responsibility for such content. End quote. So Lipton Matthews says, by genuflecting to the liberal mob and expelling dissident voices, Twitter is violating its agreements with conservative users. Now, obviously, Twitter banning a neo-Nazi with a criminal history is understandable if he wants to use it as a method of organizing violence. But to cancel an account merely because the user expresses opinions that some liberals deem incendiary is unjust. Twitter needs to be held accountable for violating its contractual obligations to defenestrated users. Unsurprisingly, one of Twitter's most recent victims is Donald Trump. The former president's critics clearly lack an understanding of metaphors. Many on the left have argued that Trump's invocation of the word fight reflects incitement. 
But a close reading of his January 6th speech, however, reveals that his language was merely metaphorical. Quote, Republicans are constantly fighting like a boxer with his hands tied behind his back. It's like a boxer. And we want to be so nice. We want to be so respectful of everybody, including bad people. And we're going to have to fight much harder. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that'll be a sad day for our country because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. If you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. End quote. Now, Lipton Matthews is is pointing out here, Trump merely instructed his supporters to protest a perceived injustice, not engage in a physical battle. For example, they may challenge what right-wingers refer to as the deep state by filing lawsuits to contest the election results. Trump had no intention of encouraging violence, even in his speech. In fact, he implored his supporters to oppose the political establishment peacefully. Quote, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. End quote. Now, liberals often use Trump's clumsy speeches as opportunities to guilt people into accepting their own sentiments. Defending Trump automatically makes one a deplorable personality in their view. And since most people fear social stigma, they often agree with liberals out of desperation. Though the decision to ban Trump is widely celebrated, Lipton Matthews says Twitter is guilty of misconduct. Twitter has no authority to deplatform Trump based on his speech, and this entire fiasco reveals Twitter's contempt for contractual agreements. He says politically correct conservatives who argue, well, the First Amendment only protects citizens from governmental power are missing the point. At the heart of this saga is big tech's disdain for the contractual rights of users who do not subscribe to a liberal orthodoxy. Conservatives must never allow their hatred of Trump to prevent them from defending the cause of liberty. That's some pretty sound advice. That is really sound, actually. From here, I want to shift gears and talk about the decline of the art of lying. This is from Alan J. Levine. This was uh, published on intellectualtakeout.org. Alan Levine says, we live in an era of unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly widespread lying. And yet he says, lying itself is an art, albeit an, un- an unadmirable one, in decline in a decadent age. He says, our leaders have set a spectacularly bad example. Former President Trump lied continually and shamelessly, as do his noisiest enemies and his successor. But they're bad liars, clumsy, unconvincing, and incredibly short-sighted, saying childish things that are easily exposed. Now, he says, I have to admit my view may be conditioned to, to my specialty as an historian. I'm used to dealing with a higher class of liars, Nazis and communists. Not that they were nice, of course, but at least they put in the necessary work. They usually made an effort to sound plausible, to offer a structured, internally consistent alternative to grasping the real world. But he says modern liars are just plain lazy. And Alan Levine says all too many of them have what gamblers call tells that disclose that they're lying. Most often, of course, to revive the old joke, it's that their lips are moving. But that, of course, is hardly a purely contemporary defect. It was a notable weakness of the Kennedy brothers as well. But that they are not very good at lying doesn't seem to deter them. All too often they get away with it. And he asks, why? And then he identifies four principal causes that can be discerned. Why are our liars (laughs) so bad at lying? Well, first, the continual hysteria that has become ever more characteristic of our society over many years, but especially since the 2016 election. It becomes particularly visible when matters of race, 
politics, and Donald Trump surface. And it reaches an extreme among the Hollywood types. They cannot express themselves without outbursts of obscenities. Second is the poor state of education. Things once well-known are no longer taught. Worse, our rotten public schools cannot teach people to read or do elementary mathematics easily, much less pleasurably. He says the educational establishment has, in effect, blown up the bridges over which knowledge is reached. Whatever they pretend, he says, by the way, they don't seem to teach life skills either. An amazing number of people are still taken in daily by con games that are 500 years old. The left's remedies for this are more propaganda against alleged racism. They also throw more money at the places that have signally failed to do what they were supposed to do, particularly the institutions of higher education. Maybe this is why modern journalism is so poor. Journalists have poor educations, especially in comparison to what earlier print journalists and the first generations of TV newsmen such as Eric Severade and Howard K. Smith. What seems to be lying propaganda on their part can sometimes simply be an expression of ignorance. A third factor in the increasing tendency towards sheer fantasy and outright disconnection from reality is the increasing tendency towards sheer fantasy and disconnection from reality. A classic example of this is the attempt to submerge the violence of the summer of 2020 by referring to riots as just protests, mostly peaceful protests. (laughs) Closely related is the fourth element, which is the extreme development of ideological thinking. The accompanying constriction of thinking to deductions from doctrine rather than observation along with the exercise of skepticism. As most ideologies have no connection to reality, this is not a promising trend. Now, there is a connection here, he says, with neophilia, a weakness for swallowing the new, or what is supposed to be new but usually isn't, which often takes the form of assuming that old ideas are bad ideas. Now, that can be true, but it's not always so. And even when it is, there's a failure to recognize the obvious, if oft neglected, point that every bad old idea was originally a bad new idea which failed to encounter sufficient resistance. All of these elements, he says, by the way, can be seen on the political right as well as on the left, although the left is fantastically worse, and lies based on ideology have a strange way of shifting sides over time. But he says the ideological thinking and crippling of education also undermine the response of the right to the most dangerous lies the left advances. A case of this is afforded by some of the responses to critical race theory and its offspring, and the ugly 1619 Project's attempt to redefine all of American history in terms of the allegedly central institution of black slavery. In this alternative reality, the real founding of America was not the establishment of the English settlements, but the arrival of the first African slaves in 1619, if they were slaves, since at least some of them may have been treated as indentured servants rather than slaves. And he says this is further embroidered with the insistence that American slavery was uniquely evil, and further the claim that the American struggle for independence was waged to protect slavery. Now, all of this nonsense, he says, defies well-known historical fact, meaning slavery was not a uniquely American evil, but a normal, if bad, institution in almost all societies above a very low level of development. The idea that the revolution was launched to save slavery, he says, is absurd. Abolition of slavery began in New England, the strongest center of the revolutionary cause, during the War for Independence. There's more to this. We'll come back to it in just a few moments here on the show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article by Alan J. Levine. This is from intellectualtakeout.org with a very thought-provoking take on the decline of the art of lying. And not only does he identify the root cause as well, but um, I, I like how he talks about the, the way that history is being taught and how that contributes to this atmosphere of really poor lying. He was talking about how um, slavery was not a uniquely American e- uh, evil, but a normal if bad institution in almost all societies above a very low level of development. And British strategy later in the Revolutionary War in its later stages was aimed at reconquering the South precisely because British leaders wrongly estimated that fear of slave flight and uprising made it the soft underbelly of the patriot cause. Now, that the British, that the British thought Southerners would easily give up, uh, give up easily to save slavery proved a classic case of over-optimism. But he says many people have dodged analyzing the damning facts preferring to invoke their own sort of ideological thinking, pretending that America was founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. Look, the nature of the society that existed before, which is closely connected with why there was a Declaration of Independence and how the American Free Society developed, is avoided. And so is the slight problem that the revolution was not originally launched to gain independence at all, much less to protect slavery, but to secure existing liberties by taming the intrusive British government that was menacing them. He says the patriots resorted to independence late and reluctantly after more than a year of war when it was clear that nothing less would serve. Being mostly up-to-date Enlightenment thinkers affiliated with the British, not the French Enlightenment, they, when forced to form a new government, naturally introduced some generally popular reforms and substituted a constitutional representative republic for the defective British constitution that had failed to protect their liberties. This is from Alan J. Levine, a uh, historian and writer who lives in New York City. Now this brings me to a question. What kind of society would you want to live in? And this is a question I'm guessing that very few people have ever seriously considered. You know, how exactly would you answer that? Would you, would you have an answer on the tip of your tongue or would you stand there, you know, doing a really good impression of a brook trout? I think even I would be, uh, hang on a minute. <laughs> I got to gather my thoughts. I, I would not have a ready elevator speech to tell people. However, Jacob Hornberger has put together a very succinct and principled outline of what the ideal of system government would look like. What, what it would, how would it appear? If only there were some blueprint we could turn to. Here's how he puts it. He says, hope springs eternal for statists. When President Trump was coming into office four years ago, conservatives were filled with hope and optimism that Trump would save America from its deep morass of crises and chaos. Alas, it didn't happen. American society is just as dysfunctional as it was when Trump became president. Now it's the liberals' turn. They, too, are now filled with hope and optimism that their man, Joe Biden, will save America from the crises and chaos that afflict our land. Now, Jacob Hornberger says it ain't going to happen, and the sooner the American people finally come to that realization, the sooner we will be able to get our nation back on the right track toward liberty, peace, prosperity, and harmony. The problem is that you've got an inherently defective system, and by that he's referring to the welfare-warfare system under which we live. 
no one can make it work. Because no matter who is elected, the crises and the chaos will remain. Tampering with this defective system only makes the situation worse. Healthcare crisis, education crisis, foreign policy crisis, financial crisis, monetary crisis, immigration crisis, trade crisis. His point is all of these things will continue under Biden no matter what he does. And so Jacob Hornberger suggests that now would be a good time for Americans to engage in some serious soul-searching and self-examination. What kind of society do they want to live in? If they like the type of crisis-ridden and chaos-filled society in which we live, well, then they should keep the welfare-warfare state system. If they would prefer a free and normal society, then they should focus on changing systems, not presidents. So here's the ideal system. Number one, no socialism. Dismantle all the welfare state part of the federal government by repealing Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, farm subsidies, education grants, and every other socialist program that takes money from Peter and gives it to Paul. No more mandatory charity. Leave charity entirely voluntary. Number two, no interventionism and regulation. No more government control, management, and regulation of economic activity. Number three, establish a free market monetary system. Dismantle the Federal Reserve and repeal legal tender laws. Let the market determine what money will be used for transactions. By the way, if that were to happen today, I think you would see a lot of people rushing for cryptocurrency. We'll save that for another time. Number four, abolish the federal income tax and the IRS. Leave people free to keep everything they earn and decide for themselves what to do with it. Number five, end imperialism and foreign interventionism. Dismantle the Pentagon, the vast military-industrial complex, the empire of foreign and domestic military bases, the CIA, the NSA, and the FBI. End all foreign interventionism and limit the U.S. government to defending the United States. End the national security state and restore a limited government republic. Retain just a basic military force. Number six, end all trade restrictions and immigration controls. That one's going to make a lot of people freak right there. Establish free trade and open immigration. Open the borders to the free movements of goods, services, and people. Number seven, repeal all drug laws. Number eight, separate health care in the state. Number nine, separate charity and the state. Number 10, separate economy and the state. And number 11, separate education and the state. I know people are racking their brains. How could a system like that work? Well, it is a system that works. And it would bring an end to the crises and chaos that besiege our land. How do we know that this system would work? Because our American ancestors proved it. That's the system that the American people should restore. And as Jacob Hornberger says, this is the system that will bring liberty, peace, prosperity, and harmony to our land. I don't think the existing system is going to uh, lend itself to being reformed. And I'm not trying to be a pessimist when I say that. I'm just saying it, it, it doesn't seem keen on the idea of changing anything about how it does business. So I think if such a system is going to uh, find its way into our lives, it's going to be because it was built, you know, out of the rubble of uh, our current system. And so I'm, I'm probably leaning more towards, uh, I would rather focus my attention on building what comes next 
than trying to fix a system that is so rotted and so crumbling that uh, it just needs to be given a respectful burial and, uh, and, and we start focusing on what comes next. That's only my opinion. You don't have to agree with it. But that's, that's where I tend to lean right now. The question is how many people you know, know the principles and practices that could create a system of freedom, free enterprise, property rights, freedom of conscience like that. Not enough. That's why I do what I do. Okay, one final thing here. I'm not going to have time to but just touch on this. If you have ever read Atlas Shrugged, you know about Galt's Gulch. This is where, when enough people finally get fed up and they decide they are going to shrug off all of the, you know, the encroachments that are taking place in their lives. What are they going to do? I'm headed to Galt's Gulch. I'm going to leave. I'm going to turn my back on it. And, and I don't blame people for doing this. But if you decide to, uh, to find your own readout somewhere where you're not uh, subjected to the whims of the political class, their blessings as they would typify them, there are five things you're going to want to keep in mind as you do so. And this is an article that was, I don't, I don't know who the, the author is, Hard Scrabble Farmer is, is the name under which it was published, but this is someone who actually did move you know, out of the mainstream and, and to, to set up basically a place where they could be as self-sufficient as possible. Quickly, they recommend find the right place, learn how to do things yourself, learn how to live in the moment. This one was huge. I, this one really got me. When you're dealing with things like providing for yourself on a day-to-day basis, daydreams need to get relegated to the back burner. Number four, embrace the new economy of subsistence living. That means producing more and more of your own food. And number five, do unto others. That doesn't mean do everything alone. Uh, it just means that uh, you, you've got to figure out who and how to cooperate, to build communities. And by being open, by helping people who need a hand, you can be a good neighbor as well as help create good neighbors. This is a marvelous article. It may be the best thing that you read all day, and you will find it in the show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for February 11th, 2021. Again, thanks to our sponsors, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, Monticello College, and of course, our good friends at Rio del Sion Home Lots. You can click on the links and tell them thanks yourself for sponsoring this show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.